you'll turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. As you've figured out, we're talking about words today. And we live in a world of words, don't we? Words that we hear, words that we see, maybe like on a billboard down the road, words that we read, words that we text or type or write, words that we speak. We have to go, we have to really work hard to go out of our way to avoid words in our world today, don't we? I mean, you have to pretty much be like on the Appalachian Trail alone to escape words. They're everywhere. Did you know that the average person speaks 16,000 words a day? Now, some of you men, I know what you're thinking. <clears throat> that your wives maybe say a little bit more than that, and that may be true. But based on the average, 16,000 words a day. And based on the average lifespan, that means that you or I will likely say 438 million words in our lifetime. It's a lot of words. A single day's words would fill a 50-page book. You fill a 50-page book every day with the things that you say. And in a year, you'll fill 132 books of 200 pages each. It's a lot of words. In your lifetime, your words would fill the longest novel ever written, which is a French novel called In Search of Lost Time. I've never read that, but uh, never even heard of it. But it's the longest novel. In your lifetime, you could write 403 of those with the words that you will say. Now, these are just the words that we say. This says nothing about the words that we text, the words that we type, the words we put on social media posts. It's estimated that worldwide there are 27 billion, with a B, billion text messages sent every day. 27 billion. And the average person with a cell phone will send 2 million words in their lifetime. Now, if you're younger, you're probably going to send more than that because you probably use uh, cell phones and, and social media and texting far more than some of us older folks. I mean, I was 27 when I got my first cell phone, right? So, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. So, like I said, we live in a world of words. And ours is a culture that loves to talk. We love to hear ourselves talk, don't we? We love to share our opinions. We even maybe are little, feel a little entitled to having other people hear what we have to say. And that really isn't a new thing. It's said that in the 18th century, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, he was approached by one young lady after he had preached a sermon on the parable of the talents. And she said, I think I know what my talent is. And John Wesley said, please tell me. And she answered, I think it's to speak my mind. And he replied, I think that's a talent God wouldn't mind you burying. So, yeah, that's true for us too. I think that today we need to hear James's words on controlling the tongue more than any other area of our life that needs discipline and self-control. Amen? Now, last week we finished looking at the central theme of James's book. Remember the first chapter? He kind of is outlining the book. He's introducing everything he's going to tell us about. But the chunk of chapter 2, we've looked at the past two sermons really focus on the theme of the book, having a faith that works. Making sure that our religion is pure and faultless and pleasing to God. Remember, he's writing to a mainly Jewish Christian church that's scattered among the Roman world by persecution, and he's writing to encourage them and us. 
that when we face outward trials like persecution or the inward trials of temptation, that we examine our faith. That we consider how we live our lives as followers of Jesus. And in chapter 1, he gives us a threefold test. For us to test and see how genuine is our faith. He says in James 1, 26 and 27, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So watching what we say, watching how we live, being mindful of how we serve other people. That is how we can test the genuineness of our faith. And we've looked at some of these already, but today James turns his full focus on controlling our tongues or our thumbs. I think if he was writing that today, it'd be tongue or thumbs. You know, it's both. It's our words. Now, James begins this passage by specifically addressing one group of people who are held to a higher standard regarding their words. Teachers. Let's look at these first two verses before we dive into his broader exhortation on the tongue. He begins with a warning for teachers. Look at James 3, look at verses 1 and 2. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. So James begins by warning his readers and warning us that not many of us should become teachers. Now, this seems a little counterproductive. And I know Matt, you know, is kind of over our Sunday school, and I know he doesn't like that verse, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, it's hard enough for churches to get people to teach, to teach Sunday school or to teach children. Why is James discouraging us on this, right? I mean, there's a reason why you don't see this hanging on church walls, this verse right here. James isn't trying to make it harder for churches to find teachers. That's not his heart. He, he simply warns us of the terrible consequences when someone takes to the task of teaching without first checking their heart, without first examining their faith. Now, in James's day, spiritual teachers, you think about like Jewish rabbis, for example, they were highly respected, even feared. They had, a, they had immense spiritual authority power. Even the name rabbi means my Lord or my master. So naturally a position that comes with great power and authority especially spiritual authority also comes with its own set of temptations. And it's kind of like what you know, Spider-Man's motto is. With great power comes great responsibility. You're held to a higher standard. So that is true of people in James' day, and that is true of people today, especially preachers. When we take up this task of preaching the Word of God, we've got to make sure that it is in the right heart, the right motive. And I would say to anyone interested in teaching, if you believe that God has gifted you and is calling you to teach, then do it. But make sure you're doing it out of obedience to God's call. Make sure you're doing it for His glory and to build up His church. We should never preach or teach or lead or serve in any way to, to build up our own ego for our own pride, for our own personal gain. It should always be for God's glory and the benefit of others. Now, that being said, if you're sitting out there thinking, well, I'm not a teacher, so I'm off the hook. Wrong. Let me tell you something called the Great Commission where Jesus said that we are all, every follower of His, we are to go therefore into all the world and make disciples, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that He commands. So if you're a Christian, you're called to make disciples. And that doesn't end when you lead someone to faith in Jesus. It's just beginning. You're to teach them by word and by example, by how you live your life. And with your words, we're all, in a way, teachers. So we should all take seriously the ways in which we live our lives and use our words. But, but back to James's focus specifically on those holding an office of teacher in the church. Notice the reason for James's warning. He says it comes with a stricter judgment. Listen, it's an awesome thing to stand before God's people and unfold His Word to them. I often tremble at the magnitude and responsibility of what I do every Sunday morning. And the same should be true of every single Sunday school teacher we have. That's why it angers me and it saddens me anytime I see a preacher or teacher of God's Word misuse their position for selfish reasons or to promote themselves or to flippantly approach what they're doing. You know, I've heard too many preachers say that you know, they don't ever study. They just stand up there and just say whatever the Spirit lays on their heart. That sounds spiritual. But if you're standing before God's people to open up His Word to them, you better have spent some time in study and prayer so you can clearly hear what God is saying. Now, James isn't expecting us to be perfect. That's why he adds we all stumble in many ways. Is there a truer verse in the Bible? <laughs> we all stumble in many ways. Amen? Especially in what we say. So James is quick to say, he, he, he's not saying that only perfect people need apply to be teachers. Because there are no perfect people. There's only one person who was ever perfect in what he said and did, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's not you or me. So we can't use our imperfections as an excuse to not obey God. If God has called and equipped you to be a teacher, then he means for you to teach. So you're not getting out of serving that easy here at First Baptist Thompson. We're not looking for perfect people. But we're looking for those who are going to work and teach and lead and serve in a serious, diligent manner, prayerfully depending on God's wisdom and strength, not their own. And if that's our attitude, then I think God is pleased to work and speak through us despite our faults and weaknesses, right? Paul said in 2 Corinthians, 17, or, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, he's talking about this thorn in the flesh, some kind of a, a weakness, whether that's a... You know, a, a, a spiritual weakness, a physical weakness, we don't know. But as he's talking to God about this weakness, listen to what God says. He said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And Paul's response is, Therefore I will, boast most, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. He says, So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now James is transitioning us from his warning to teachers to his warning to all of us. Which is why he says in verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole Body. What James means is that those who can control their speech, they're well on their way to spiritual maturity. They're well on their way to accomplishing that goal that James has said multiple times. He asked for us. Remember what James has said? That if, if our religion is pure and faultless, that if we have a faith that works, that if we seek the Lord's wisdom and strength and faith without doubting, 
then we will be mature, complete, lacking nothing. Our goal is to be mature. Our goal should be able to control not only our mouth, but our whole body. So what James is asking here in verse 2 is, do you want to achieve spiritual maturity? Focus on your speech. Because if you can bring this under control, the rest comes easier. But my goodness, how hard it is to control this, right? So James now moves to addressing the trouble with the tongue. Now let's go ahead and just read verses 3 through 12 so we get the whole picture of his, his uh, exhortation to us here. He says, Now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships. They're very large and driven by fierce winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though, the tongue is a small part of the body and boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. As we've said in previous sermons, James's audience, his original audience, must have had a trouble with this. They must have struggled with their, with their language, with their words, for him to spend so much time of his letter on this. And... Maybe they were guilty of complaining about their circumstances. Remember, they're persecuted, they're scattered, they've lost livelihoods and homes and land. Some of them are still impoverished. Maybe they're complaining about the oppression they're receiving from the Romans. Maybe they're you know, complaining and wanting to stick it to the man, grumbling about their circumstances. Maybe they're complaining about and criticizing others within the church. We don't know. But aren't you glad that's not a problem for us today? Right, aren't you glad that nobody ever criticizes the pastor or the music or the color of the carpet? That, I mean, that never happens, right? I mean, people don't complain about things in church, do they? And we don't complain about the government. We don't complain about the economy, right? How much gas costs to put in your tank, right? Isn't it great to be a people that never criticize or complain? Yeah, right. We've created new ways of criticizing and complaining, right? That's what Twitter's for. That's what we do on Facebook. Listen, if James thinks that persecution, I mean actual, your life is in danger persecution. If James thinks that persecution wasn't an excuse for throwing off all restraint and letting loose a volley of verbal fire, what's our excuse? We have none. No amount of hardships gives us the freedom to talk as if we're not followers of Jesus Christ. Rather, persecutions and hardships should give us greater opportunity to demonstrate the difference Jesus makes in our lives. 
One of the greatest witnesses we can have is how we talk, the words we use when we face hardship and grief and difficulty. So in verses 3 through 8, James focuses specifically on the power of our words. The power that our words have. He points out how the tongue, though it is very small, is extremely powerful. And he drives this point home by calling our attention to three large things that are controlled and directed by comparatively small things. He first talks about horses. Think about a mighty horse. Strong animal, can, can pull a heavy load, can run a vast dif- distance in, in a great speed. A, a horse is a powerful animal, yet it can be controlled by such a small thing by a bit in its mouth. And then he talks about ships. I think about those ships you see down in, in Brunswick or maybe in Charleston, those gigantic cargo ships, right? Just stacked so tall with all those boxcar boxes, you know what I'm saying? Those, those shipping containers. You know, this mighty ship, it can, it can pierce through the roughest waves. It can travel vast distances in, in relatively great speeds, hauling an enormous load of cargo, and yet it's directed by a relatively small part of it, that rudder down there at the bottom that you can barely even see. And then he talks about forests. You can have a forest that's vast, tens of thousands of acres, yet it can be endangered and destroyed by something as simple as a discarded match, as a downed power line. Something as small as an unattended campfire can wreak great destruction. James's point is hard to miss. The bit, the rudder, that campfire all have power that's disproportionate to their size, and so does our tongue. So does our thumb. Words have the power to destroy. Look again at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James draws a comparison between his last illustration of fire and the tongue. He calls the tongue a fire, and we know that's true, don't we? It is a fire. The tongue, a mere two ounces of muscle, can bring incalculable ruin and wreckage. As I prepared this, I could not help but think about some of the very reckless and irresponsible words we're hearing from our political leaders and the media. No matter what side of the aisle you may vote on, you know it's true. And such reckless language not only has caused wanton destruction and violence and murder in cities around our whole country, but even in our own capital. Words can tear a nation apart. They can pit citizen against each other. Or words can unite and rally us together for a noble cause. I think about the words of Winston Churchill or FDR at World War II, uniting nations in a time of crisis. In uh, kind of shifting gears here, in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Dumbledore has a great quote that I love. He says, Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable both of inflicting injury and remedying it. That's true. Our words have great power 
It's true for politicians and pundits, and it's true for you and me. The words that we speak, the words that we type and text and post have the potential of causing great havoc and immense harm. We know this to be true, amen? How many churches have been ruined by gossip and slander? How many individuals have had their reputation ruined by reckless talk? You know the old saying, loose lips sink ships. Loose lips can sink a reputation, a testimony, a family, a church. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like a piercing sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The choice is ours. We can use the power of our words wisely and responsibly to heal, to encourage, to equip others, or we can rashly and hatefully use the power of our words to wound, to cut down, and to destroy. We have that choice. How many of you would ever think of setting your neighbor's house on fire? Any hands? Thankfully, no hands are up, Russell. Amen. That's great. But how many of us are willing to commit spiritual arson with our words? With what we say about someone or to someone? Now, where does the tongue get this fire? Where does this this power of destruction originate? James tells us right here in verse 6, it comes from hell itself. It comes from hell. Pastor Kent Hughes said this, the uncontrolled tongue has a direct pipeline to hell and that pipeline goes both ways. Not only do reckless words come from hell, but by our reckless words, we can fill hell. How many people have gone out of this life rejecting Jesus Christ because of the hellacious talk they've heard from so-called Christians? Jesus criticized the Pharisees for doing this. He told them that they used their words to shut the door of heaven on people's faces. And are we not just as guilty by our gossip, our complaining, our profanity, our hurtful words? Aren't we just as guilty of sometimes shutting the door of heaven in somebody's face? At the very least, we put an obstacle in their path. You know, we would be careful, I hope, all of us with a fire. We'd be careful with our car. We'd be careful with a loaded weapon. Yet how often are we careless with one of the most dangerous weapons we possess? Our tongue. Now, James doesn't pretend that this is easy. In fact, his next point there in verses 7 through 8 is that our words are virtually untamable. Our words are untamable. He talks about how people have managed to successfully tame a variety of animals, elephants and crocodiles and sea creatures, even birds. He says they can be tamed and controlled with enough time, with enough effort. Think about it like this. A man can stand in front of a massive lion and crack that whip and yell his commands and that lion obey. A lion. That same man can stand in front of a mirror and look at his tongue and crack that whip and command it and it goes right on out and it commits all of its destruction. He can control a lion better than he can control his own tongue. James calls the tongue a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Our words are like verbal cyanide or fentanyl. And it does its damage before sometimes you even detect its presence. It's a deadly 
poison. Which is why it's so important for us to slow down. To stop. To consider our words before we speak. You know the old count to ten before you say something in anger? Before you send off that that angry, nasty email, why don't you just type it out and let it sit overnight? Because nine times out of ten, you come back and read it the next day, you decide just to delete it. Don't text that person in anger, in frustration. Don't spread that news online. Do you tend to criticize and complain more than you encourage and compliment? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that we're to do everything without grumbling and arguing. Woo. Do everything without complaining and criticizing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firmly to the word of life. We live in a crooked, perverted generation. And they speak like they're crooked, crooked and perverted. We're to shine like stars. We're to be faultless and pure, children of God. So Paul says, don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't argue. What about gossiping and spreading rumors? Saying you're talking bad about somebody behind their back. What does the Bible say about that? Well, Proverbs pulls no punches when it says in 1628 that a perverse person stirs up conflict. If you stir up conflict, Proverbs says you're a perverse person. And a gossip separates even close friends. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of destructive words. Or maybe you've been the one to deal the verbal blow. Light the flames of gossip and give someone else a tongue lashing. Now James isn't done yet. He wants his readers to see not only the destructive, untamable power of our words, but he also wants us to see the phoniness of our words. The phoniness. Look at verses 9 through 12 again. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs, neither can a salt water spring yield fresh water. Someone once described the tongue as the little hypocrite in our mouth that makes a big hypocrite out of us. <laughs> Here's how we can be funny with our words. One minute we're blessing God, and the next minute we're cursing someone who's made in His image. That makes our praise of God seem rather phony, doesn't it? And again, James uses the natural world to highlight how remarkable this is. He says a spring cannot produce both sweet water and bitter water. You're not going to have a spring that's going to give you salt water today and fresh water tomorrow. He says a fig tree. Guess what it produces? Figs, not olives. A grapevine produces grapes, not figs. Yet remarkably, the tongue can produce both blessing and cursing. And faced with this grand inconsistency, James can only say, brothers and sisters, this should not be so. It shouldn't be that way. And we know that James is right. We know that our irresponsible and inconsistent speech is not right. 
And yet we go on and on with it, don't we? Because of the unruly, untamable nature of the tongue. Listen, on our own, we can't control our tongue. On our own, we can't have power over our words. But thanks be to God, we're not on our own, are we? If you're a Christian, you've got the Lord Jesus Christ living in you by His Spirit. His Spirit indwells and equips and empowers you. His Word is here to guide you. His people are here to hold you accountable. We aren't on our own. And if we trust in God, if we follow what His Word has to say, if we follow the leading of His spirits, then we can have power over our, over our words and use them for good and not evil. I'm going to close by sharing with you four things we need to do to have power over our words. The first is confess and repent. As James said, we all stumble in many ways. Is there anyone here who's never stumbled with what they say? Good, because if you raised your hand, you'd be lying, and that's stumbling in what you say, right? All of us have. None of us are perfect here. But thanks be to God, as serious as the sin of our words is, the grace of God is greater still. And He can forgive, and He can cleanse, and He can make us new. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That includes what we say. We need to confess our sin with our speech, with our words that we say, that we text, that we tweet. We need to confess that and repent of it and turn away from that. Secondly, count the cost. Count the cost. The terrible cost attached to our sinful speech. When we say hurtful things, we often don't stop to think just how costly they can be. David wrote in Psalm 39.1, I said, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. We need to be determined to guard our words, to muzzle our mouth so that nothing hurtful or unwholesome will pass through. That's the resolve that we should have counting the cost of the damage we can do with our words and saying, God, I don't want to do that. I want to use my words to encourage and to build up and to heal. And God will help us. Third, speak what is good. Speak what is good. Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We need to fill our mouth with good things, with positive words of hope and forgiveness, with worship and praise and thanksgiving, with compliments and encouragements. Fill our mouth with Scripture. Whenever I'm doing marriage counseling or premarital counseling, one of the homework assignments I give a couple is that they need to give each other one, at least one genuine compliment a day. At least one genuine compliment every day. And I encourage them to pray for each other every day. Listen, it's harder to use your words to hurt when you're actively trying to use them to help. It's harder to really be angry at someone when you're daily praying for their good. The words that we say can change our thinking and our feeling and our acting. When our mouths are filled with praise to God and kind words for and about others, there's less room for the poisonous, fiery talk that we sometimes use. And number four, we need to look to the Lord. 
Look to Jesus Christ who is our example. We know how hard it is to control our tongues. Isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ never once sinned with His mouth? Never once backtalked His mama. Never once teased His brothers or sisters. I don't know if He had sisters. We know He had brothers. Never once did He tell a lie, not even a white one. You know, if somebody came and said, how do I look in this? He, he told them the truth. He never sinned with His words. He is our example. And we who have no righteousness of our own, we can put on the righteousness of Christ. And He can transform the way we speak. You know, words have power. That's what we've been talking about. Words have power. Words have power, as Ben said, to encourage a team. You know, there's power at Neyland Stadium when Tennessee's playing there, right? Rocky Top, man. Powerful words. All that cheering, all that yelling, all that encouraging, it frustrates the other team and it bolsters up Tennessee. Amen? Nobody amen that, Ben. I... Words have power. God's Word has power. With God's Word, He spoke the universe into existence. Think about that. God could say, let there be light, and there was light. God could say, let there be sky, and there was sky. Let there be ocean, and there's ocean. Let there be plants, and there were plants. God created the universe with His words. And with the Word of God, He can forgive your sin, He can heal your hurt, He can give you a fresh start, and give you life abundant and eternal. With His Word, He can declare you righteous. Do you need that today? Do you need to know the saving power of the Word of God? If you don't know that you belong to Jesus Christ, if you don't know that heaven is your eternal destiny, I encourage you to use your words to simply say to Him, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe that Jesus, your sinless Son, died on the cross for my sins and rose again. And I ask you, God, to forgive me of my sins. Make me new and make me clean. Jesus, live in me so I can live for you. The Bible says that with our words, confession is made into salvation. With our words, we call upon the name of the Lord and we are saved. Do you need to do that today? If you're online or listening on the radio, maybe you need to bow where you are right now and pray that prayer. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to come down to this altar or come down to me this morning and do that today. If you are a Christian, maybe God's Spirit has convicted you today about the way you've used your words. Maybe you found yourself being a little too critical lately. You grumble and you complain about everything. Maybe you've been talking bad about somebody. Maybe you need to come this morning and lay those sins at the altar and renew your commitment to God that you want to use your words to heal, not to hurt, to build up, not to tear down, to do good, not to do evil. Whatever God has laid on your heart, let's be obedient today. Let's stand and pray. Father, Lord, we thank You for this challenging message this morning on words, Lord. And There's not a person in this place that doesn't need to, to think seriously about how irresponsible we can be with something that is so powerful. God, I pray that You would help us as we leave this place today to make a concerted effort this week to bite our tongue when it seeks to grumble and complain or gossip or criticize and Instead, to prayerfully look for ways that we can build up and encourage and pray for somebody and put an end to the gossip, not further it along. 
Father, we pray that your spirit be moving and working in our hearts right now and in the days to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray.